Reflection for today in the list of the ten paramitas that we're, we're reflecting on is the is the um, perfection of patience. And um, as I mentioned in the opening introduction to this topic, you know it hasn't been very long um, in my journey where I, I wouldn't have honestly been able to say that I had much patience. Um, and I don't know that I'm the only person who's like that <laughs> and so again um, you know I come from a family and a culture that you know being clever and creative and having a, in, in intelligence is uh, highly highly valued and highly praised and and coming up with strategies and resources to get what you want and to get rid of what you don't want and to um, find ways around things has been something that I just grew up with. So learning just how to bear patiently with something is not um, is not really something uh, that came easily to me. And even when there were plenty of opportunities for learning, <laughs> I still... I still manage to drag out my strategies to avoid doing that because it's just not something that's uh, it's very pleasant. In fact, the Buddha said that patient endurance is the supreme austerity. So when you look at the Tatanga uh, practices, the 13 Tatanga pra- practices of wearing rag robes, um, eating uh, one meal out of an alms bowl, um, sleeping in the open, the, the trial ground practices, sleeping, sitting up. Um, there's a list of 13 of them. And, you know, the highest, the most extreme austerity is patient endurance. So it puts it a little bit in perspective in terms of, um, you know, what we're working with. And probably one of the reasons why... Um, it's not that valued as a cultural um, quality. It's not that easy to cultivate. It's unpleasant, but it has a lot of um, it has a lot of virtue when one is able to manage the uh, whatever it takes in order to begin to learn how to actually bear with something and allow it to shift. And one of the virtues that it has is is that there is an awful lot that can shift and come into its own balance when we simply just give it time. So there's a lot of um, of, uh, angst that comes with uh, certain kinds of perceptions or memories that arise that if we just um, 
give it time. It'll find its own level. It'll settle itself out. There are many, many illnesses that if we just bear with them, they just sort themselves out. And, you know, that touches into some really raw nerves around, you know, what we're supposed to do when we get sick and how we're supposed to look after ourselves and each other when we get sick. And it, it, it's, it, patient endurance is not an encouragement to become negligent. It's, it's just a, the recognition that there's, there is a lot of stuff that if we just bear with it, it'll, it'll find its own level. And so, yeah, I think I mentioned it was the bush in Australia that really helped me learn because I, I couldn't outsmart it, you know. My cleverness was just beyond, the bush was beyond me, you know, in terms of, you know, being in the hot season and, and having uh, a place with no electricity and, and so there was no fan and there were no pools, you know, so there was a shower the water would dry up except for one creek and uh, there's just no way to uh, avoid the kind of uncomfortable feeling of what it was to be hot and to be hot day and night and not to really have much remedy from that and so just sitting with that you know for a, a season you know, you just began to, something just begins to shift gears and slow down. So, you know, and the Vasa, you know, one of the ways in which monastics count how many years they are um, a monastic is by the, the number of rainy seasons that they have completed. Because the rainy season in, in Asia can also be similar in the sense that it's wet and humid and you can't move around much. and um, no matter what you do, everything is a little bit damp and moldy, you know, and that's your clothing and your internal organs and your mind states. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's just that's just what's on the go, you know. So the rainy season, how many rainy seasons have you endured is is the kind of criteria of how how long you've been in the community. And Mona, she she drove um down here to help the painting party on Sunday and she's living up at nine and a half thousand feet with her partner and she says yes I've been here five winters you know and uh, and so for her you know the whole sense of you know how long she's been here has been measured by how many winters she's endured and so you know when the snow is thick and she gets snowed in a lot and there's just piles and piles of wood to cut and and quite a lot of snow shoveling to manage. It's it's something you can't um, clever yourself out of it. It's just a question of step by step, one day at a time, you know, making the journey. And, you know, visiting my father in, in this rehabilitation place and then just getting a, a, a look in at, you know, what the situation is for elderly people and I, there's a nursing home right next to my little cottage and I, I just walked in I was just checking out the parking situation but in order to check out the parking situation I needed to step into the place and you know some of the conditions that these people are sitting in you know are just they're grim 
It's just absolutely grim. And there's no magic formula or pill or magic wand or or anything that's going to voop, voop, and it's over, or voop, voop, and it's sorted, or voop, voop, and it's resolved. Or it's like it's just a question of, you know, sitting with it and waiting with it until the conditions shift. So, you know, I haven't physically given birth to anybody. But, you know, these these things like birth, old age, sickness, and the death process are classically um, conditions which patient endurance is needed. You know, the baby comes when the baby's ready, you know. And so it doesn't matter how big a person is and how uncomfortable they feel. It's like the baby comes when they're ready. And with many sicknesses, they just don't easily respond to medicines. You know, there are not magic medicines to get. And they are just a question of enduring um, painful physical body states and uncomfortable mental mind states until they shift. And the process of aging is also one where you know, gradually we lose our vitality and our um, capacity to remember things. And then um, our mobility sometimes, or our sense faculties, sometimes our mental faculties. And there are certainly things that one can do proactively to support health, and it's not to dismiss or deny or ignore those. There's also a whole large portion of life that just does what it does, you know, and kind of independent of our proactive and creative and clever interventions. So when we do get a sense of what patient's endurance is and how to work with it in terms of how to just be with something, watch it, allow it to be there, not have um, an agenda about how it should be or ways of shifting it, and just let it do what it needs to do there's another kind of settling into one's own skin that I've experienced so that also you know the bush the, the hardship of being in the hot season and some of the frustrating components of being in a remote place in the wilderness was one of the components that really helped me sit back into my own skin in terms of you know well, this is what life is like and this is something that one can bear with and just manage. So, you know, there's a... I don't even know who originally who originally uh, came up with this quote. But God grant me the strength to change what I can, the patience to endure what I cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. So... You know, there's, there are places where we can interact and um, do things. And it's certainly helpful to have resources around what those are. But it also is really helpful to learn how to allow things to be the way they are. And knowing when it's appropriate to intervene and interact. And when it's appropriate just to sit with something and let it be. Now sitting with something and letting it be for one person may seem kind of grossly negligent for another person. And so I don't know that there's a kind of 
absolute standard or criteria that we can create or to determine as to, you know, what what are the things that we need to just sit with and bear with, and what are the things that, you know, we can um, work with in order to shift the conditions themselves. So the the um, you know the five reflections on on working with our or the working with the requisites. You know, we wear robes so that we can protect ourselves from heat, um, mosquitoes and flies and creeping and biting things, and for modesty. And so you know, when there's a sense of of our, our comfort zones around temperature are just incredibly narrow. And what happens when we move out of that a little bit? And the immediate um, action is to change, to change more clothing or to change the temperature or change the thermostat or to change, to change it so that we're back in the comfort zone. And, you know, certainly in a, in a climate like this where you've got freezing temperatures and snow, one needs to take care that, you know, one's not getting frozen and frostbitten and all the rest of that. And likewise, in the summertime when it gets really hot and the sun's very fierce, you know, one needs to take care that, you know, one's not overexposed to the sun and not getting overheated and getting enough water. But those are the extreme edges of the temperature ranges. And what we do is, is that when there's just the slightest movement out of comfort zone, we make a movement towards correction. And so maybe one way of practicing with it is just to begin to stretch our capacity to feel or to endure that which is a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit too hot, a little bit too cold, a little bit, not that we're getting hypothermia, but just a little bit. So that we begin to register, yeah, it's uncomfortable, you know, and what does it feel like, you know. For the whole experience with the body sensations and health or hunger now, you know, in this culture, there's a, there's a, a kind of, it's normal to eat three meals a day. That's a normal thing. When I was in uh, Australia and I spent a little bit of time with the Aboriginal people, they ate about uh, three times a week. And I thought, I mean, I have no idea how these people actually do this. But it wasn't normal to eat three times a day. And so, you know, when we get hungry, or that's another one where there's there's um, immediate movements towards satisfying the hunger. Now, living as an alms mendicant in the situation where the food that I eat is the food that's offered to me, I mean, I'm in a situation where it's a little bit, got a little bit of flex in it now, but, you know, the food that I ate was the food that offered to me, and whether it agreed with me or didn't agree with me, or whether it was at a time when I was hungry or wasn't at a time when I was hungry, it was like that was was offered, and then there wasn't any more food that was offered until the next day. And so it's like, it is, it is interesting, and it has been a very interesting exploration to see how much is mental agitation around the experience of hunger, and how much of it is actual hunger and the need for the food to be the right thing. And it's been a, quite a journey to un- unpick it, you know. And having physical illnesses, which I have had for much of the time I've been a nun, there was like really 
agitated mind states around needing to have certain kinds of food at certain times, you know, and that I shouldn't have other kinds of food at certain times. And over decades, it took decades, I could see that the agitation was more mental than it was actually physical. There certainly was a physical component, but the mental component was by far the one that overrode the physical one. And so, you know, these are not simple learnings. And because it touches into some very raw nerves about survival and about being taken care of and being well cared for and and uh, being able to ask for what one needs and have that be given. You know, these things are very deep kind of patterns. And then, you know, Pat and I were talking on the way home about just expectations and how, you know, oftentimes when I think about myself, like, I am thinking of myself as if I had the energy of a 20-year-old. And so my expectations of what I can do and what I can accomplish and what's reasonable is, is completely out of what my actual physical energy levels are at right now. And that's just normal. <laughs> and so the process of getting older is one where, you know, it takes longer to uh, recover from illnesses. I have a little bit less energy. You know, when um, something happens, it, it just uh, is slower for the whole thing to write. And that's, that's a normal kind of process that happens as aging. Now, my health for 20 years was really impacted with health problems, and then it shifted. And so the last few years, I've been healthier than I have been for a while. At the moment, I've got stuff going on, but that's a, a recent, recent addition. So it also can be, you know, that it's not only that it's a decline, but it also can be that, you know, things can shift and then one can actually have more energy and more clarity, more capacity. But, you know, as one, um, these things shift and change, then how is it that one can be with um, memory loss or lack of mobility or lack of physical strength or you know, these natural kinds of declines that happen when we get older, it, where we're not either ignoring it or imagining it's not there, but just bearing with it, you know, just bearing with it. So, um, weather and hunger and sickness and aging, you know, these are all classic opportunities for being with stuff that is unpleasant and the death process itself is not something anybody is able to outsmart you know and so uh, the medical establishment has done uh, quite a lot of good work in working with pain control and so it, it, it's, it's, it can be so that it's not as horrendous in terms of that but as the body begins to break up most people do not experience that as a physically pleasant experience. You know, it's very unpleasant. And yet you can't outsmart it. You can't avoid it. You know, some people kind of go to sleep in the middle of it. But it's something that is just something to be endured. But the more that a person can practice in life, and then the more there's preparation for these kind of experiences as they're happening. And I've also heard ex- explained and described 
death experiences where a person just becomes absolutely luminous because as the body is breaking up, attention is just resting in awareness and they become very clear that that actually is who they are. So as everything starts to break up and fall away, you know the luminosity of the mind is the thing that their attention is resting in. And that doesn't shift, even though the whole everything else is shifting. So, um, you know, it's everyday things where patience can be practiced. And um, when there is a right understanding of when to use patience, then it also gives fortitude of when to intervene. So... It's a, a it's a tremendous resource to have, and uh, for me, it's been one of the slowest, hardest things that I've had to learn. You know, so are there any questions? I love it. What you were saying about patient endurance. It sounds or resonates very closely with letting go and renunciation. It's hard for me at this point to see. I, I get the sense that they're different, but very intimately intertwined. I think so. I mean, letting go is the movement away from grabbing hold of, and patient endurance is this is is the the bearing with something without um, asking it to be otherwise. So letting go is, is, is this movement and patient endurance is this movement. Just uh, this. It's, just a, it's, 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 it's after that first letting go thing has happened. Yeah. So, for example, you know, with the cold weather outside and the house is a little bit chilly. And so the first impulse would be to turn the thermostat up. Okay? So there's desire. So the letting go bit would be to see the desire and to let it go. And then the patient endurance bit might be to, you know, put on a couple more sweaters and another sock and a hat and to just feel the edge of well, it's a little bit cooler than I would normally have in order to be around in T-shirts and socks. But I'm not harming my health. But I'm enduring something that otherwise I wouldn't necessarily do. I mean, that would be the way I would look at it. I guess in relation to what you said, I mean, too, it's, it really is striking me as I go along and we're practicing and looking at each of these, how connected they are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of the same thing, but it's a little different twist mm-hmm. each one. So it's uh, something about stability, not that there's anything permanent, but it's, I guess it's just resting. Mm-hmm. 
It's just resting, each of them. Even resting active or resting silently or... And again, there's different cultural um, kind of takes on this, you know. So, like, I was in England, and, you know, we have walking meditation, and, you know, the winters in England are bitter in a different way than they are here because they're so damp, you know. So the thermometer is not as impressive, but the effect is just it's really hard on the system. And inevitably, on retreats, there are people who are elderly, so they're in their 70s or their 80s, and I remember there were a couple of women who were in their 80s, and every single walking meditation, they were outside the entire time. And the weather was horrible, you know. It just never occurred to them that they would stay inside, you know. So, it just, it's like, you know, there's a familiarity with harshness as just the normal. It's normal. And you just, you just bear up. You just make do. But these people would have not had central heating in their houses when they grew up. You know, there would have been a one place in the house that had a heater, and the rest of the house was freezing. And uh, they just grew up that way. Or in Thailand, you know, everybody sits on the floor. You know, and they don't have carpets and cushions and sofas and other hands. They just sit on the floor. And sometimes it's wood, sometimes it's concrete. They just sit on the floor. And, you know, your body gets used to that when you start as a child. But these people, you know, some of them were ancient, you know, with all kinds of limb things and disability things and all the rest of that. And it's just, it's what you do, you know, just sit on the floor. So there are, it's, it, there are a lot of stuff, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, the, this, the cultural habits has a strong imprint on what we get used to, what cons- what's considered normal. And, uh, and and what isn't you know so if we took a group of people to Asia where there was no cushions and sabotines or mats or carpets and had everything on the floor <laughs> it would be quite a practice appreciative of a cozy long sleep shirt and candles burning in a carpet and a chair the comfort of it mm. it, is, it is comforting but it also is very interesting you know I've been on retreats I remember once at Spirit Rock I was, I was on a re- teaching retreat there and the contraptions that people brought you know so it's like, you know, you don't feel comfortable to sit and meditate until you've got this whole contraption that, that is going to support you in your comfort. And there was one guy I nicknamed Cadillac because he, he had this contraption that was set up so that he was kind of like <laughs> leaning back and you could only just kind of catch his eyes amongst this pillow thing that he had kind of created for himself. You know, it was completely impossible for him to sit upright. You know, so there was no way that his back could be straight. And so then it would be challenging for him to be awake because his posture was all wonky. You know, and it would be a contraption that would fill up like the better part of a half of a car, you know, the back side of a car, you know. 
So the one side of it is, is that it does bring comfort, but the other side of it is, is is that it actually is quite limiting, you know. So the only time that he would feel comfortable doing a retreat for more than, you know, an hour is if he had his contraption with him. You know, so you go for a walk in the Red Rocks, you know. You can't just sit down. <laughs> you go to somebody's house, you can't just sit there, you know. So everything's got two sides to it, you know. So complacency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And it gets so habituated, this is normal, that one can't imagine that there's another way, you know. And that's why, you know, in the American culture, particularly with the economy being so unsettled and unstable and people are suffering a lot through a lot of loss, there's such deep-seated fear because the standard has gotten so high and it's gotten so taken for granted that people cannot imagine that actually it's possible to live with a lot more simplicity. I mean, the rest of the world seems to manage, but that doesn't seem to impact what we think and feel. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm curious how you practice with that today and what comes up for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.